What up, what up? All right, thank you, thank you. Thanks for coming, thanks for being here. Grand new series. And this series is pretty straightforward. Like when we're talking about the greatest, we're gonna look at the next, over the next three weeks, we're gonna look at three different topics that the historical church has labeled great, right? There's statements Jesus has said, but that the historical church over time, over the last 2,000 years, have come together and say, these are the greatest. And tonight we'll be doing the great commandments but before you do that, get and before we get into that, right? There's there's always a lot of goat debates, right? You get goat greatest of all time, like, and I I feel like, are we cool if we start off with a little controversy tonight, right? Stir up a little animosity in the room. See who's feeling a bit feisty. Yeah, we're we okay with that. Okay, I got five topics for you. <clears throat> Each one of them, there is two answers. You either can put up a one or a two. There is no three. There is no no voting. Your neighbors will hold you accountable. You get two options, one or two. That's it. No complaining. I made up the rules. This is how we're playing. Okay, five topics. Number one, check this one out. <clears throat> Coke or Pepsi? Let me see it. Where we got our, we got ones, we got twos, we got ones. I'm a one, adamantly Diet Coke. I shouldn't drink it, but I do. Pepsi people, I just don't get it. <laughs> I just don't, okay? All right, let's go. Two. Pancakes or waffles? I better see what I'm seeing too many twos up in this place. And I know, I know some of you want a three, but French toast isn't on the board, right? We're just working with what we got. So pancakes, waffles, next. Apple or anything else, right? <laughs> Apple or any, we put everything else in the same category because we know your green bubbles and your ruining group messages every day, right? <laughs> We're praying for you, but eventually Apple, anything else? Next one. Cats or dogs? Like, can I get a, anybody? Oh, sorry, no. I'd probably say two, right? But cats, dogs debate, cats, dogs. Last one, this one's easy. Let's go. Let's go, we got our jacks in the room. Come on, number one, horns down, get your ears up. So there you go. Now here's what I need you to do. I need you to turn to your neighbor, apologize, forgive them, right, for what they thought about you in the last moment. Practice a little bit of repentance in this place. Let's get some unity built back up. All right, all right, all right. Bring it back together for me. We good now? You got the GOAT debate out of your system, and I wasn't even gonna touch none of the sports ones, right? We're not doing any of that tonight, no nonsense. But we've got this debate, and the reason I start here is tonight we'll be, we will be in the chapter Matthew 22. And Matthew 22 is gonna lead us into a series of different debates. And so we need to get kind of that debate mindset in to understand what's going on tonight. So as you turn there to Matthew 22, I'd love to pray. Father, thank you tonight for the chance to open up your word and to learn from you. I pray that you would speak to us through the words of scripture, that we would see Jesus' wisdom and we would live in light of it. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. I'm going to read it up here. Then the Pharisees went out. And they laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. And this is our first pit stop. We're going to do a lot of scripture tonight, but I need us to stop right here because we need to understand what's going on, right? What's happened here is there are two groups of people teaming up together, right? One group of people is the Pharisees. The Pharisees are people who made it their living to master the law. Like everything they did functioned around making the Jewish law permanent in their lives and in society. And the Pharisees are teaming up with this group called the Herodians. 
And the Herodians, everything they were about was supporting this guy named Herod so that Herod could gain popularity and power in the kingdom of Rome, and eventually they would get power too. And what you need to know about these two groups of people is 98.9889, like a long decimal percent of the time, almost 99% of the time, these two hated each other, right? The Pharisees, they're over here and they've got their theology and their practices and their principles and their way of life and their beliefs and and what they think is important. And then like way over here is the Herodians with their theology and their practices and their people and, and, and they couldn't be farther apart. They're both Jews but totally different groups of people. Yet here they are teaming up. And the only reason they've gotten together in this verse is because they have a common enemy and his name's Jesus. So flip with me to the next slide. When they're teaming up, they, they hate Jesus for a certain reason, right? They don't like that Jesus has gained prominence, that he's gained power, that he's gained influence, that he's had success in ministry because they feel like it is stealing away from their success in their religion. And so they step up to ask him this question to trap him. And here's what they say. Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. We know that you teach the way of God in accordance with truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Right? They're just buttering him up. Like, they're just sucking up to Jesus because they're about to hit him with this, this, like, sucker punch. Verse 17, tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, maybe you're not picking up on what's going down here, but this is a straight-up loaded question. That the Pharisees and the Herodians have teamed up together to hand Jesus a ticking time bomb, hoping, praying, maybe even fasting that it blows up in his face. The Pharisees and the, and the Herodians hate Jesus, they hate his ministry, and they want it to crumble, and so they test him with this question. If Jesus says yes, that they should pay taxes, the nation of Israel, along with all of the Pharisees, are going to be ticked, right? Because they, they despise Rome, and they even hate more taxes. But then, for some reason, if he's to say no, then Rome, this oppressive government, is going to be super mad because they're not getting their taxes, and the Herodians, which have infiltrated and been a part of their system, are also going to be upset. Right? For example, imagine with me you're at your family gathering, Thanksgiving, Christmas, Fourth of July coming up, and you're sitting there. And for no reason whatsoever, you tried to avoid it, you knew it was a bad move, you, you, you knew you shouldn't have gone there, but for some reason, politics gets brought up. And you're like, oh my gosh. Aunt Betty, staunch Republican. She's like as red as it gets. And Grandpa Donald, he's like as Democrat, and he is Democrat till he dies, right? Like, and you're in the middle, and you've been... You find yourself in this sticky situation, right, where the topic comes up of gun control. And you're like, oh, Lord have mercy, right? Like, you know Betty's got an opinion, and you know Donald's got an opinion, and this bomb has gotten tossed into the middle that is a conversation, and you don't know what to do with it, and you might have your own opinions and your own agenda, and you might have all these things, but no matter what you do, no matter how you answer, someone's leaving mad, right? You been there? You feel that? That's what's happening to Jesus. He's been pitched this question where no matter what he does, someone's leaving mad. Yet Jesus is wiser than we are and he responds like this. But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius. And the denarius is this coin right here in the corner. 
Like, I want you to be able to see what Jesus is holding as he says what he says next. He says, whose image is on this? He's looking at this coin right here, that one. He says, whose image is on this? He says, whose inscription? They say, it's Caesar's. Jesus responds, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. <laughs> like that is a mic drop moment. It literally is the perfect response, right? He has somehow lended just enough credibility to the government while still submitting to his higher authority that is God. It is a masterfully perfect response. It is so good that in verse 22, they say this, when they heard what Jesus said, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. Jesus is so wise that his wisdom silences and disperses the crowd. What he says is so brilliant, they literally shut up and leave. <laughs> they're mind blown at the way Jesus could answer this question that they're literally left speechless. They walk away, tails tucked between their legs because they're embarrassed for even asking the question. And it sets up a pattern that we'll read in the text tonight because in Matthew 22, there is not just one debate there are actually four, four different de debates, a series of debates, each that have a very similar pattern. If you can put that chart up for me, Nicole. You'll see they all start with a loaded question. For instance, this one goes, pay taxes, and then it goes to Jesus' perfect response. Remember, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And I would love to unpack that for you, we just don't have time tonight. But just know it is a perfect response. And the people, they respond in a way. This one says they were amazed. And this shows up over and over and over again in the chapter of Matthew 22. So let's look at our second debate. Verse 23, that same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. Right? Pause here. We now have a third group of people. We had the Pharisees, we had the Herodians, now we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees are a group of religious people who have used the political system to gain immense power. Right? Their theological camp believes there is no resurrection, and that's kind of what they hold dearest to them. But they've come up to yet again test Jesus. They hate his ministry and what he's done because it's stealing from their power. Here's what they say, verse 24. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now that's, that's kind of setting up the law. Now, to give the law legs, they're going to talk about a hypothetical situation. This is what they say. Now, suppose there are seven brothers among us, and the first one married and died, but since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second brother, then the third brother, and eventually all the way down to the seventh brother. Finally, the woman died. Now, here's the question. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven since she was married to all of them? They've pitched her, they've pitched Jesus this hypothetical sweat, this ooh, hypothetical question based on this idea that there, there can't possibly be a resurrection. In this, you see our pattern play out, right? You've got your loaded question, and in your loaded question, whose wife will she be? Can I get that chart again, Nicole? Whose wife will she be is the question he asks. His perfect response, you'll see this. It says in verse 31, but don't you know that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living? 
They were wrestling with how, how is the resurrection take place in marriage, but they're asking the wrong questions. And so Jesus points them to God being the God of the living, not the dead. And finally, it says they walk away and they are astonished in verse 33. They are astonished. They literally can't believe how smart this Jesus guy is. Now we're on to our third debate. The first two just setting up the platform for what is where we'll spend the rest of our time tonight. Verse 34. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. Now you remember we have these groups. Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, they don't get along. And, and so let, this is the best way I can think to explain it, right? Anybody watch WWE growing up? Yeah, okay, I'm the only one. I'm the only weird goat. <laughs> like, it's the fake wrestling thing. Like, WWE, one thing that happens, yeah, here we go. <laughs> well, the one thing that happens is there's, every once in a while there's these tag team matches, right? So it's like two or three people against two or three people. And what happens is when one person is in the ring getting the snot kicked out of them, they'll crawl over to the edge and they'll tag someone else in. And then they jump in the ring, probably off the top rope, and they try to, to, to beat up on the other person. It goes back and forth and they tag in and off and like, it's fake, it's scripted, it's entertaining. So that's what's happening here. It's like a WWE tag team match. Jesus is in the ring and the Pharisees and the Herodians have teamed up and they squat up and they walk up in the ring and they get smacked, right? Like, they get absolutely owned, they're KO'd, they crawl out of the match and they, they, they tap in the Pharisees. The Pharisees walk in, they're all, or they attack in the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they walk in, they're all confident, right? And it's like instant KO. Like, they're just donezo, right? Jesus from the top rope kind of action. And finally, they're crawling back out of the ring, only to tap in the Pharisees one more time, who are probably intimidated and scared because they've already been in the ring. They got their boat whooped. They don't want to go back in. So this time they send their all-star. And their all-star is called the expert in the law. And you'll see in verse 35 what he starts to do. It says, one of them, an expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Right now is a moment where your alarm bell should go off. Because that's a loaded question. <laughs> it, it, what he's just asked is, again, like pitching a bomb into this conversation, hoping, praying, longing for Jesus to mess up. It is a loaded question in its finest. Because this guy, he's an expert in the law, an expert in the law, and he's testing Jesus. The law here is referring to the entire Old Testament of the Bible, okay? This guy has the 39 books of the Old Testament memorized, right? Sometimes I feel like I'm a little nice, like pulling a, a reference verse from Isaiah out of my back pocket, right? Like, I think I'm good because I got a couple little here and there, you know, like Genesis 2.24 tells you. Like, this guy, 39 books, word for word, he can give them to you at a, a moment's notice. An expert in the law. And he comes to Jesus and he asks this question, which is actually a fairly common debate of the time. The Jewish law contains 613 different laws, which the Israelites were supposed to live perfectly. Now, 613 is a lot of material to work with. And so commonly in the day, the, the, the religious leaders would sit down, they'd, they'd go to Cool Beans, they got their cup of coffee, right? They're, they're kicked back and, and they start shooting the breeze, you know, like, which of these laws do you think is the heaviest, right? The hardest to live through? Because they wouldn't rank them because ranking them is kind of bad, but they would talk about which is, which is the heaviest. And they'd be like, well, I think it's maybe love your, your parents' uh, with respect. 
And then the other one would be like, well, 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 which one's the softest, right? Which one's the one like, I'm not going to say you shouldn't do it because they can't say that. But like, it's, it's like if you didn't do it, it's like, oh, it's probably okay, right? There's 613. And so they would sit around all the time and rank these and talk about them. And, and, and really, it's just a normal conversation for religious leaders. And this guy's an expert. So when he comes to Jesus, this is not the first time he's asked this question. No, no, no. This is probably the hundredth time he's asked this question. This guy's got every response in the book memorized. Right? It's like when I get into a goat conversation and someone starts talking about who's the greatest soccer player of all time. And like, I'm ready for that debate. Like, don't come at me with that. Like, I will, I will, I will mess you up with my messy stats. Right? Like, this guy's got it all. He's ready to rock and roll. And he asked Jesus this question, not for Jesus to get it right, but for that, him to make Jesus look like a fool. And in verse 37, Jesus says this. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus has turned around and responded to this guy with yet another perfect response. Perfect. He's done it again over and over and over. They stepped up to test him and over and over and over again, Jesus came through. But as you read that, you might be wrestling with like, What's so amazing about that, <laughs> right? Love God, love others. On the surface, it, 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 it feels so simple. What's so crazy about what Jesus has just said here? Let me take a sec to show you. When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, he is directly quoting from the Old Testament. He is taking a line right out of the expert's playbook, right? He is quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5. He's saying to him his own script. In, in Deuteronomy 6, 5, it's like the John 3, 16 of that day. Like everybody got Deuteronomy 6, 5 lo like locked in, right? Like everybody knows Deuteronomy 6, 5 because the Jewish people, twice a day they prayed this prayer called the Shema. And the key verse in the Shema was Deuteronomy 6, 5. So every single morning when they woke up, the prayer they started to pray was, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Every morning, every night, head hits the pillow. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Deuteronomy 6, 5, it was constantly on their mind. They were praying it to recognize God's oneness and his greatness. And so when Jesus answers, the scholar would have agreed. He would have been on board with this. This was a common answer in the debate of the day. But the problem comes... Not with Jesus' answer, it's with how the Pharisees were living out Jesus' answer. Because it becomes very easy to agree with loving God, but then not to live that out. It becomes so, so easy to agree intellectually with what Jesus has said here. Right? He's had the debate. He has said the answer. He knows this is the correct answer. Everybody's on board here, Right? But the problem is they were not living in light of it. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Mark in his gospel will add the word strength. And today, when we talk about this, sometimes there's a tendency to really segregate these ideas. Right? And so when we're talking about the mind, we're thinking, how can I love God intellectually? When we're talking about the soul, sometimes we get into this habit of talking about how do we love God with our desires? When we talk about loving God with our, with our uh, body or with our strength, we're looking at physically. 
When we talk about all of these different things, our heart, our emotions, there's a tendency for us to segregate these out. And so we'll try to tackle it one step at a time with like, what can I do intellectually to love God more? And what can I do physically to love God more? And what can I do like emotionally to, to, to love God more? How can I change my desires? And we, and we pigeonhole what Jesus is talking about here. But that's not actually the case of what Jesus has laid out for us. What's really happening here is Jesus is saying, with all of you, with all of you, love God. Because for the Jewish culture, they didn't have this segregation of these words. Rather, they were pieces laid on top of each other, layering what it meant to be human. Right? For them, mind and will were not separate ideas, but, but congruent things that overlapped and described pieces of what it meant to be human. So Jesus is not segregating our love, but rather he is calling us to this all-encompassing type of love. And when the Pharisees hear that, they agree, but they don't do that. They said it. They believed it. They expected others to do it. But they themselves did not love God with all of who they are. Then, because Jesus is Jesus and he, he kind of, the dude could do what he wants, right? He throws in a second command to his question. He says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Here, Jesus is referencing Leviticus 19.18. It's another script or another line from this guy's playbook. Jaina spent some time in our XOXO series describing a little bit of what this entails. She talked to us about how when we love God and we receive that love from God, it teaches us to love ourselves. Because you can see here that a prerequisite to loving your neighbor is loving yourself. Right, as we embrace the love of a father, as he tells you you are a child, dearly loved, created in his image, as he lavishes his love on you, you are meant to receive that and turn around and love yourself. Right, so if we are at this place where tonight you do not love yourself, you've got work to do there. Embrace the love the father has given you and love yourself, and then step into the other part of the command that is love your neighbor as yourself. Take that next step of faith. But we can't get our priorities mixed up here. We have to love God first and foremost. Then we can begin to love others. If we don't love God, then we can't love others well. It's that simple. If we don't love God, if we don't receive love from God, then we will not love others well. And our culture has immensely messed up love. And when I talk about love, I'm not just talking about romantic sexual love. Like that is a minuscule part of what is this bigger picture of love. Like the Greek actually has four words to describe love because that's how vast it is. Right? I tell, I tell my wife I love her. And then I tell you, I tell, I'll tell anybody in here, I love Qdoba, right? But three cheese nachos, I don't love nearly as much or the same as my wife. Right? That's the brokenness of, of love in our culture. Yet also at the same time, we have defined love as a culture and you have felt this because I, I, I think there's nobody that's escaped this, that to love in our culture is to entirely accept anything that everybody chooses to do. That's what love has become. That if we don't entirely accept people for whatever decisions they make and whatever opinions they have and whatever passions they pursue, if we don't entirely accept people, then that's not loving. And I want us to challenge that tonight because I've seen that play out in my own life. I remember back to college, and again, I am not just talking sexually here. I am talking holistically. 
I remember in college watching one of my, my friends make horrible decisions, like horrendous decisions, time after time after time. And I was sitting on the sidelines thinking, ah, oh, man, what, how do I love him in this? And I was talking to some of my other people, but we were watching him out of our peripheral, and he was skipping class and not doing homework and failing classes, right? And then he was going downtown a ton, and he was getting all kinds of drunk, and he was hanging out with wrong people, and he was bringing girls back, and they were, they were not living in God's design. And, and over and over and over again, I saw his life just spiraling. And I remember sitting on the sideline thinking, what does it look like to love him? Because my flesh, and I think our culture, would sit back and say, hey, you do you. Who am I to judge? Who am I to say anything, right? If you want to do that, if you choose to do that, like, ah, that's not love. I'm going to let you do you. But as he got stuck in this pattern of sin, I wish if I could go back in my life, I could step into those moments and give him true love. And I'll tell you, love is this. Love is desiring God's best in every situation. Love is desiring God's best in every situation. Because sometimes when we define love the way our culture does, we define love based on their best. Right? It's what you want to do. It's what he wanted to do. And who am I to infringe on what he wanted to do? But that's not love. Instead, sometimes we sub in ourselves, right? We get selfish in relationship or we get selfish with ourselves, and it's, and it's what I want to do. And so we define love based on what I would prefer to happen in his life or in my life. But that's not love either. Love desires God's best in every situation. God's best is God's will. God's best is, is his desire, his written general will for you to live like Jesus always and forever. And so what would have been loving is to step into his life and to have the hard conversation to say, hey, I see this. And I don't think that's God's best for you. And to lovingly, kindly, gently walk with him back to a place where he can experience God's best again. But do you see the problem there? Is we have people jumping into this world saying, I'm just going to love others. But they've got a broken view of what love is. They don't know God. They haven't fallen in love with God. They don't know God's best. And so how, how in the world can we possibly offer that to others? We can't. And that's where Jesus, again, it becomes so masterful. When he says, love God, then he tells us to love others. He wraps up this debate with verse 40. Here Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. <laughs> Here's what's mind-blowing here. What is being said here, love God, love others, is so simple, right? Two things. Love God, love others. It, 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 is, it is radically simple. But at the same time, all of the law, all of the prophets, and all of the Old Testament is summarized in these two words. Love God, love others. That is the whole entire law. What Jesus has done here in two verses is summarize 613 laws. What Jesus has done here in two verses has summarized an entire religion, their entire way of life. He has summed it up, and when he has summed it up, he has called it love. All of the law is summarized by love. It is sometimes that beautifully simple. 
Jesus had this perfect response to the expert's question. And unlike the Pharisees, his actions actually backed that response. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, nor have I come to abolish the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When Jesus came, he came to be the fulfillment of the law. We just saw the fulfillment of the law is love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us God is love. Matthew 1, you can read it and see how Jesus is love. He is God in the flesh. He is literally love put on a body. That is who Jesus is. He has come to fulfill the perfect law. He knows exactly what is God's best in every single situation. To summarize, the great commandments are to love God and to love others. Simple. Right? Can we get on the same page there? Is is it simple? But as people, we have a tendency to overcomplicate things. We love putting back on the heavy burden of religion. The 613 laws will just shackle them on up and will try to walk through this life running the hamster wheel of obedience. I don't know why. I think there's just something in us that, that likes hard. We like to get in the trenches and to get stuck in the nitty gritty. But in reality, being a Christian should be fairly straightforward. It's about love. I'm in my own life. I'm constantly wrestling. I had a conversation with the leader just a couple weeks ago, and we were wrestling together. What does it look like to be a good friend? Right? And we were sitting there. We were pondering. And eventually, I just got to this place, and I was like, dude, we just got to love God better. (laughs) If we love God better, we will be a better friend. Because we were nitpicking, we were like, maybe we should reach out more, maybe we should be more intentional, and maybe we should pray about it more. And like, I was like, we're off, we're off base here. I'll sit with some of my married friends, and we're like, dude, man, I sucked as a husband last week, right? <laughs> like, that is real. And we're like, how do we be better spouses? And we sit back and we're like, well, maybe if I like made the bed and like actually put my dishes in the dishwasher and like came home when I was supposed to and was not on my phone so much, and we like make this list. But really, if we just loved God more, we would be better spouses. Right? Anybody sitting in here tonight just wishing, man, I wish I could be a better Christian. I wish so bad I could just be better at following Jesus. Tonight, I pose to you this solution. Love God more. Fall in love with your heavenly Father. And let that help you to love others more, becoming the Christian you are meant to be. What if we simplified faithfulness back to the great commandments? What if we got obsessed, like I'm talking obsessed with loving God and loving others? What would that look like? If we went all in on the greatest commandments, what would change about the way that you live life? I want to pose you two more questions. Two application questions. I don't always like an application point. Maybe you've picked up on that. I want the spirit to typically lead you into what you need to do. Are we okay with that? Like some some preachers, and I think that's fine. Like there's there's a lot of people who want to stand up here and they want to give you this is what you should do. And that's good. That's where the spirit has led them. That's awesome. For me, I typically want the spirit of God to lead each 400 of you into what your next step is. Now, that takes a lot of the burden of work off of me and puts it on you. And I think that's okay. I think you can handle that. 
but tonight it's different. All right. <laughs> one question for you. What's one thing you can do to love God more? One. Simple. Not 15, not 12, not 5, not 3, one. What is one thing you could leave tonight? And this week, you could invest in this thing and it would help you to love God more. Maybe for you, it is committing to a discipline like prayer, right? Rather than sitting on your couch, just scrolling the phone again or, or jumping in the car and listening to the podcast, maybe you just start to pray, right? And at first it's awkward and it's weird, but you start to invest it and you just start praying. Maybe it's reading your Bible. Maybe it's fasting. Maybe it's journaling. What would it look like to commit to a spiritual discipline? Maybe for you, loving God more this week looks like consistently showing up to the group. Right? You, you signed up for the group. You showed up. You, you pop in every once in a while. Like every time you show up, everybody's excited because they're like, hey, they came. But what would it look like if every single week on your calendar, you put it on there and you didn't skip it? What would that help you to love God more? What if it was just consistent church attendance? Right? Instead of the statistic in one every four weeks someone comes to church. What if every single week you chose to be here in this place, invested in what God is doing here? How would that stir your affection for God? And the second question I pray is an overflow of the first one. That as you love God more, you will be led into the second question that says, what's one thing you can do to love others more? Where's an area of your life you can look to desire God's best for someone else in a greater way. Maybe it is you have to have that hard conversation. Do it with gentleness, respect, kindness, patience, prayerfully. Right, but maybe that's it. Maybe the person is in your mind right now and you're thinking, hey, I know they're not living in God's best, but tonight or tomorrow, you step into having that conversation. Maybe it's that person in class or, at your co or in your dorm room or in, in your uh, workspace or whatever it is. Maybe it's that person you, you've wanted to connect with but you never have and this week to love others better, you would step into relationship and you just in, in, introduce yourself and you just ask them how they were and you would mean it. And you would maybe, maybe, if you're feeling bold and courageous and I would encourage you to step into it, maybe you would tell them about Jesus. Just one person this week. What would it look like for you to love others more? And if we take these two steps, I'm not promising perfection, but I think it'll put us on a road to progress back towards faithfulness. All right, I told you there were four debates in Matthew 22, and we've only covered two of them, or three of them. <laughs> if we've covered two, we would be totally out of time. But we've, we've got one left, okay? And I'm not holding out on you. I promise that this last one I've held off for the last second because it's different. It, it, straight up, it's just different than the other ones. Because Jesus, he just answered the, the, perfectly the greatest commandment. And for the first time in this chapter, he starts playing offense. And I get hyped up. I'm like, let's go Jesus, right? Because before they get their chance to run away or to be amazed or to stand in awe, Jesus asks them a question. Right? Remember, tail between their legs. They just got beat up, smacked down. They're about to, to dip out of the ring. The, the rate, it's over, right? But Jesus has got one question left. Verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? He's asking about himself, right? <laughs> Loaded question. Whose son is he? They replied, the son of David. Jesus said to them, 
how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord, he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? Now, if you're confused, that's cool. <laughs> the Pharisees also confused. <laughs> they also had no idea what was going on. Because in this moment, what Jesus has done is he has challenged their view of the Messiah. If you don't know, Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is God. He's standing in front of them, asking them this question, challenging them. Because remember, they had rebuked God. They, they had rejected God's Messiah. They were not living. The person who had come to save them stood in front of them, and they were unwilling to recognize it. That's what's happening here. They're so confused and frustrated. And in verse 40, it says, no one could say a word in reply. He asked a question they can't even get an answer out for. No one can say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. We've seen this pattern play out. Loaded question, perfect response, and then the people respond. This time, Jesus doesn't wait for the response. This time, when the question is asked and they respond, Jesus gets the last word. And his wisdom is unfathomable. His answers and his questions go beyond what they could imagine. If you were to keep reading in Matthew 23, Jesus will continue to, to kind of beat up on these religious people. He'll call them hypocrites, blind guides, snakes, and more. Right? He's just loading on the negative terms. And as he does that, some of me sits back and thinks, oof, that's, that's tough, right? Like, why is Jesus beating up on these guys so bad? And the reason is because loving Jesus, walking with Jesus, being a Christian should be simple. Yet these religious leaders had stacked these burdens and these laws and these obligations and these rules and these regulations on the people weighing them down. They had a form of religion that excluded grace. They had these laws and these rules, but they had lost sight of the real thing. And Jesus was calling them back to the real thing, that which is God's desire. And we've seen tonight what God's desire is. God's desire is for us to love. That's simple. It is that simple. And when we load ourselves up or we load others up with these expectations and these rules and these regulations that feel tiresome and heavy and burdened and we get confused and we get neglected and there's, and there's all this hardship, when he has told you, love God and let your love for God lead you to love others. What if you did that this week? What if you followed in the wisdom of Jesus that baffled the people of his day? This man who was unlike any other, when he told us this is the greatest of all commandments, what would we do if we lived in light of that? Pray with me. Father, tonight, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scripture in Matthew 22, that ultimately your word is alive and it's active. And tonight I pray that it's spoken to your people. Spirit of God, would you still come and move that as we have these songs to finish that the learning and the teaching and the transformation has not stopped when your word is finished being preached, but it will be continue in these moments of worship as we declare who you are, God. Spirit, come and move. Come and fill our lives. Teach us what it looks like to love you. 
Even as we sing, remind us of moments where we have fallen deeply in love with you. Give us the experience of love in this place tonight. And then God, as we leave, would you send us as your people, salt light, living in the way that we are meant to, to love our neighbors, to love others. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen.